Office Hours, episode three. Wow. Here we are. Really interesting conversation with Dr. Raspberry. I took away a lot. It's been really cool to hear what she has had to offer, especially like since I'm learning a lot about clinical psychology and mental health and parenting. So it's a really cool conversation. What did you think about it? I loved it. I mean, there's so many things to take away. And one thing that I really was feeling while we were doing the interview was how much applies to anybody, right? Like they are very specific and super important in the adoption framework. Mm -hmm. But everybody should be trying to do a lot of the things, you know, like a lot of what she was talking about was empathy and putting yourself in other people's shoes and not making assumptions about people's situations and putting your like letting your guard down and putting putting some of your own personal issues aside and like caring for somebody else. Like that's a lot of what everybody needs. Mm-hmm. So I really loved a lot of the stuff we talked about. I thought it was super, super important. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm excited to kind of break some of this down. Yeah. And I think what you're already hitting on is that CPR model, yeah. which is really cool. And like you're saying, I think it can be widely applied. The, what was it? Consistency, predictability, and re- reliability. Reliability, yeah. And those things, yes, I think they're really important for like trauma work and like adoption and foster care. But yes, those types of values can just be applied to any type of situation. Yeah. I mean, especially like when, especially like when people's emotions are involved, right? A consistent, predictable, reliable framework in somebody's life to like be able to handle and manage their emotions and to help somebody manage and handle their emotions, I think is really important. I think it's very easy to feel lost or, you know, isolated when you don't have a consistent, predictable, reliable framework for handling your emotions. And I think, um, like you're saying that that's a, that's a really good framework just in general. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I really like attachment theory in psychology. And that literally is the basis for like a caregiver child relationship in the first early years of their life is, is this caregiver going to be responsive consistently? Is that response going to be empathic? Is it going to be catered towards their needs and not directly what the caregiver needs? So all these things, all these parenting tips, all these relational tips were just so helpful. It's funny because even as you're saying that now, and I had been thinking about this after, but like raising a puppy is really a a similar process, right? Like Mm -hmm. you have to put your needs for the dog before you're the needs of yourself. Because unlike a child, the dog's never gonna be able to communicate with you. So this idea of consistent, predictable, and reliable in the dog training not even training, just like creating a predictable environment, that is communication to the dog. Mm -hmm. It's the physical cues that you give the dog. It's verbal sounds, but it's not necessarily words. Having raised the dog in the last two years from an eight-month-old puppy to now, I learned that real quick, right? Mm -hmm. Like everything is your fault, everything. And And if you can accept the fact that everything's your fault, then you know that everything's also in your control. And that's super important because if it's in your control, you can do something about anything. Mm-hmm. The dog chews your shoe. You left your shoe out. The dog chews the couch. Well, you let the dog have access to that couch. This can be reworked for any scenario with a dog. You could have done something different. Mm-hmm. If, you're, if you know your dog's not ready to be in a room yet, crate train, put in a different room, find a new space for them, dog proof your 
everything. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, it's a hundred percent on the dog owner to do everything. Yeah. And I feel like that's, you know, I kind of made a joke, like it was a bit of a crude example, but it's really relevant. It's very true. And I think kind of back to the theory, what was the theory you were just talking about called again? Attachment theory. Attachment theory, right. Like you've got to be ready to put those needs of the animal, the child, whatever it is before your own. And if you can do that, then, you know, you're going to, I think you're going to build a relationship that's got a lot of that CP, those CPR qualities in it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think I always think about the distinction between teaching and fear because right dog messes up, they chew your shoe. You could blame them and like get really mad. And so maybe they're fearful that they'll never do that again. But like, what does that create? Right. Mm -hmm. And it goes for the same for a child. I feel like you can yell at them because they did something wrong, get really angry. Maybe they won't do that again because they're scared to do that again. But yeah, what does that do to them? I don't know. I don't think it's teaching them. It's, it's telling them that something's wrong with you because you did this instead of saying, Hey, maybe you didn't understand. I'm going to help you understand. And from here on out, like you're going to have a better knowing way of going about this, you know? Yeah. So that, I think that distinction is, it's, I think it's becoming more clear as we move more towards um, teaching instead of like physical punishment, you know? Mm -hmm. I know there's still people who really abide by like corporal punishment in different cultures, but I think it is becoming more clear that teaching is a way to help people understand rather than just enforcing. Yeah, I mean, it's super true, right? Like I think to your point, there's a really clear difference between the physical showing somebody physically what they did wrong in terms of like corporal punishment, like you're talking about. I mean, and this has been something that we've learned and, but it's generational, right? Like mm -hmm. three generations ago, you got the belt. Like that was just what happened. Mm -hmm. But now it's like, okay, maybe like, I think we underestimated the intelligence of children for a long time. Mm. They get it. You can explain why not to do something and a kid is going to get it. You know, they may not, do it right next time because at a certain point too like innate curiosity of a child is going to be like to test things and push the boundaries and get that response back from their environment and i think you know the more and more i've been thinking about our conversation i'm like i really think that letting your children go out and like do things fail on their own and just being that emotional support type of a thing is like really a really valuable tool that a lot of people could benefit from right mm -hmm. you know the simple example is like when a young child is putting their pants on for the first time you don't have to step in and help them every time mm -mm. they'll figure it out and then you'll be there for them if they figure it out wrong and you'll show them and you can show them and they'll learn and they'll figure it out but you know just specifically on the punishment side kids can be explained to mm -hmm. and they'll understand yeah um, and i think we have to be more willing to let them be told and fail again the exact same way and then be told again and you just have to be there to be that reminder mm -hmm. you know even even when it frustrates you you have to like we we're talking about put yourself aside yeah it's not about you there's a very distinct way that these that humans learn this stuff mm -hmm. and you have to be willing to change your way of doing things to cater to the way that the child needs it yeah and I think that's where this consistency piece it comes in. And that's where the challenging piece comes in. That kids definitely hear everything you say. Sometimes they don't listen. And that's where your patience, I feel like, gets tested as a parent. I can't speak 
from personal experiences of yeah, parents, of course, of course. but yeah, in my experience in working with kids, I think that that's something that comes up is that like, maybe they're distracted, maybe they're jumping around doing different things. Maybe they're really not paying attention to me, but I know that they're like hearing what I'm saying mm -hmm. and they're processing it. And they're taking it in because if I ask something probably five minutes later, like they know exactly what I'm talking about there. Yeah. There's just that tendency that they, they want to experiment. They want to do stuff their own way sometimes. And so I think this is exactly what Dr. Raspberry was talking about in that setting high expectations for specifically maybe a child who's experienced a lot of trauma and you're going to be adopting this child can really be dangerous for that environment because you have these high expectations. This doesn't happen the way you expect it to. Things are just so different. It can be a very hectic situation. And I think that applies to parenting in general. But that consistent, predictable, reliable source is something that I think sounds amazing and is really hard in practice. Super hard. Yeah. Yeah. It's tough. And I, that's, I, that, I think, like we were saying, I think that's why I really appreciate the work that she was doing, like preparing parents for this actively working with parents throughout like the first couple years or a couple months of having a kid and one of their children now uh, in their home because that adaptation is so difficult. Yeah. But like, I don't know, is there, I feel like sometimes there's not enough being done about parenting. Like yeah, for sure. teaching parenting. I had a professor in college that like every class where it was a human development class. And so it was about psychology and parenting and every class it was i don't know why the hell there isn't a parent university like if you're going to be For a sure. parent you should have to go to like four years of school and i was like damn I'm, yeah that, that yeah. makes sense well and like if if you have never been exposed to another type of parenting probably not going to do a different style of parenting right mm -hmm. if you're familiar with you know the corporal punishment model of parenting you're going to do it and if you're not exposed to strategies, strategies for controlling yourself, not necessarily strategies for helping a child, but you need to like be able to see your child messing up and not react in a explosive manner. And mm -hmm. I feel like that's really difficult for a lot of people, mm -hmm. you know? So yeah, I think I'm super, super glad that we do it for parents who are adopting, mm -hmm. but every parent could use it for sure. Oh yeah. I mean, right? yeah, there's, there's so much more we could do and again, it's funny because we're talking about we're talking about parenting, but this is this is about developing capable children, right? Mm -hmm. It's not about creating better parents, mm -hmm. even though that's the way to do it. It's about how are we setting the next generations up to be better than we were. And I think that's what every parent really wants at the end of the day, right? Like they want to set their child out into the world so that they can function highly in society. Mm -hmm. And I heard a I forget where I heard it, but I, there was a um, somebody doing some kind of a talk and they were talking about, like we say like raising children and they they said that like raising, you don't raise a child. Child's gonna grow on their own, whether you're there or not. Instead of thinking of yourself as a, like a, a farmer of children, you're more of a shepherd of children. So you're not tending the soil, you're not bringing the water, you're not the sun necessary for these. But the shepherd moves the child in the in a direction right mm -hmm. and helps you know they're gonna get the food out on the pasture that they need they're gonna get the yeah nu the nutrients that they need but it's and I, I really like that i think it's because it removes the feeling of of being in control as a parent 
mm-hmm. and kind of relinquishing some of that control to the environment. And this isn't a discussion about, you know, nurture versus nature, but there's, I think there's a lot of benefits from taking an approach with anything specifically, you know, my context is like the dog thing, but it like, how do we, how do I show this thing, living thing, how to properly behave in the environment, not in a, I'm mad or I'm happy way, but just in like a matter of fact, right? Mm-hmm. Like, this is not how we do that. This is how we do that. And I think that's a, a very refreshing take on maybe a, an older verbiage that is used on, on parenting. No, I think that's a really cool way to think about it. It's like the shepherds leading them to the, the appropriate f- food, to the places where they might get the best sunlight, the best water, but those things are there, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, I think that's so true. And it enables, I think it also is a very enabling style of doing it to where like you're allowing decision and failure to happen, right? Mm-hmm. It's funny, I, I remember growing up, there was a a kid who I know in a family that I know of who like accidentally touched something really hot and like got a massive burn on their hand. Mm-hmm. I just imagine like how from a young child, like doing those types of things, I think everybody's done it, right? Where like a baby like touches something hot and then like we learn those things that way, right? There's an input. We we figure out in our brain, okay, don't do that. Or when you start to feel that, know that you don't want to do it. And then you make an adjustment. And I feel like we have to let our children, I mean, granted, there's like a life or death component to this, mm-hmm. but like climb the tree, right? Run too fast in a, in a slippery air. Not maybe, okay, maybe that's one of those life or death ones that we want to be <laughs> cautious of, but like you get the point, right? <laughs> Let them try and fail and just show them that that's okay. Fail forward. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, are you not going to try now? Because no, like, let's get it right. Let's do it. There's that video that's so popular on YouTube of the little boy and the dad who's trying to jump on that stool and fails probably 30 times and then gets it and is jacked. (laughs) And it's like, it's such a cool video. Mm -hmm. And I think because overcoming something like that and failing so many times and still trying is, God, that's what it's all about. You know, it is. Yeah. As we're thinking about this, God, everything's so complex because I completely agree with what you're saying. And then my mind's running to these different places about parenting support, youth support. And it's like some people go through some really difficult experiences and these resources. There are so many people that Dr. Raspberry wasn't able to work with. Oh, yeah. People who like she worked with weren't able to reach out to or weren't able to connect with. And those people are really struggling, you know. And so, God, there's there's parents that are struggling. You can't just blame them. Then there the kids that are struggling and you can't just blame. And it's like, is our education system doing a good enough job of informing us about how to be a parent? Is that more of a sole responsibility on us to like go out and learn ourselves, read books? Mm-hmm. I think there's definitely a piece of that. But like, I don't, if I wasn't in the field of psychology to where I had to take classes about like development and learn about empathy and learn about different stages of like mental health and what's going on. Like, I don't know. Yeah, I, you may, you may not have been as exposed to it as you are. No. And so I would think that maybe just brushing the surface of this would be sufficient. But now that I know that there's so much more to it, mm-hmm. like I'm able to dive deeper into these layers of understanding different stages of development, understanding more about like pregnancy 
and all these different factors that go into that. But if I wasn't, yeah. And I think to your point, there's people who are going to seek out this type of information, right? And those people find it and they tend to be able to do something about it. Mm-hmm. But there's the people who don't know that they don't know. Yeah. And it's that mindset of like, how do you get those people to be exposed to it so that they can do better? Mm-hmm. Because you're right, they're going to go through hard times at some point. There's going to be difficulties. And if they don't know that this type of like research and work is being done, they also won't know that there's a resource out there for them to go find it to better impact themselves in their children's lives. Mm-hmm. So how do you get in front of those people, I think is the big question. Yeah. And how do we make this, I think you were also even alluding to this, is like, how do we get this ingrained in our culture and society to the fact that it's not so foreign to so many people? Is it in the school system? Do schools need to put a mandatory parental coaching session one time a month from kindergarten through fifth grade? I don't know. Maybe, maybe there's one when you're a freshman in high school on how to deal with high school stresses. Something. There could be something, I mean, right? It's, if we could just bake it into the education system, it seems like the natural environment to make it happen. But yeah, I don't know. Or like there's, high schools can implement like a parenting support group or, or like parenting education. I mean, maybe that's out of their scope. And I know like teachers and mm-hmm. have all And you this. can't compel a parent to have to show up, right? No. And there's going to be a lot that don't. It, right? Yeah. But again, offering it, the people who want it are going to be the ones who take it. Damn and it. the ones who don't are going to be the ones who just ignore it. So we force everybody. Dictatorship. Through corporal punishment. <laughs> <laughs> but no, right? This is... And this goes back to the federal budget only giving education like 1%. Right. <laughs> but I mean, even even if the budget was through the roof, like you're still going to have parents who don't want to do it. Yes. So what do you do about that? This is where extra resources through, I think, like other, go, go ahead. I was just going to say, <laughs> I, complex. I, I think the, in my opinion, something that can be done is you need to better prepare children for breaking the cycle. Don't try and go back and fix parents who aren't willing to be fixed mm-hmm. if that's yeah. if that's how we want to look at it maybe fixed isn't the right word but better prepare so maybe the parents who don't show up those kids may need extra because you can kind of make an assumption maybe it's an unfair assumption mm-hmm. but maybe those kids need a little extra effort on showing like showing what the impact is having on them so they can be self-aware enough to know that that's not how they need to approach their own children in the future mm-hmm. and then hopefully you know let's say you get 100 people, if you can get 20 of them to be different, then you're making progress, right? And it's just time. Yeah. Yeah. And we're not saying that all parents who don't do like classes or something are like bad parents. But there's Absolutely definitely not. good parents yeah. out there. But yeah, this extra information I think is so helpful. There's a large majority of parents who are doing a fabulous job. Yes. And have done so much better than their parents have done before them. And everybody's, and like like we said, that's the point. And we're not all at the same starting point. Mm-mm. You know, some of us come from different areas, different backgrounds, all that stuff. But there's so much good being done by parents today. If you were to compare it to 40 years ago, we were just in a different times, different world. And like, yeah, it's cool. Yeah. And there's so many good resources out there, like the work that Dr. Raspberry was doing. Right. That are being provided to a lot of families and a lot of different people, but yeah, we just need to keep progressing with this. Mm -hmm. And this information needs to keep being disseminated throughout everyone. Like people need to be exposed to this type of information because in one of my classes, I was learning that the rates of moms who are poor, they're just, there's like a hierarchy 
in <clears throat> regards to like poverty and then like ethnicity. So if you're poor, you come from a more difficult neighborhood, your access to these resources is so much lower. Mm -hmm. And there's just that education piece that doesn't really extend all throughout. And so it's just, yeah, it's challenging because mm -hmm. we want everybody to have this kind of information and mm -hmm. to really get the best support that they can so that they can support their child or support themselves. Yeah, there's no doubt that like these systemic injustices play a role here, right? 100%. You know, and we, and we have a responsibility as a society to make sure that there's no inequality I mean, in everything, but specifically because we're talking about this, this especially is important. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, yeah. Did you have a favorite piece of information or takeaway from this? I think one thing that another thing I've been thinking about was some of the work that she did with the relaxation techniques mm. just speaks to the power of the human mind and what you're capable of through like just that those mental practices, you know, whether it be breathing techniques to go along with mental imagery. I think that stuff is so we're just at the surface, I think of, I mean, we don't even understand the full functioning makeup of like the human brain. Mm -hmm. Right. So like, how can we assume to know how things are impacting it? Yeah. Yeah. I just think that stuff's so cool to think. And I'm, I think there's more applications that maybe could benefit from that type of technique that aren't being used now. Right. Mm -hmm. um, some of the work she did, did with lumbar punctures and, uh, um, what was she bone marrow sampling or something like that? Like really painful procedures where they were mm -hmm. having to something like that. Anyway, the fact that she could like build a rapport with these kids, figure out a story that she could paint for them and then tell the story back to them and they would, could listen in mental imagery <laughs> <laughs> using mental imagery. They could like work past some of the pain and that so effectively that the doctor was in shock that the mm -hmm. child didn't react. That's pretty cool. Yeah, that needs to be applied more into medicine. Yeah. Right? We're, we're busy doing so much stuff. <clears throat> when I take the time to actually breathe and just stop, I love when like I'll have a training and whoever is hosting the training will like have us practice something um, that's like mindfulness based or some type of meditation because I'm just like, damn, like, what was I doing? What, where was I in my head until I did this? And we're just so rushed and so busy that we forget that our body and our mind can like be calmed if we want it to. Yeah. You know, and it just takes practice, but it's, it's something that we can consciously do. Yeah. Like the effects on just being able to like downregulate your nervous system mm -hmm. when you take slow breaths, deep inhales, like a seven inhale, seven exhale for like 14 breaths. Mm -hmm. I'm sure nearly 100% of the people listening to this did not this past week take seven second inhales with seven second exhales for 14 breaths. Mm. I'm sure of it. There's maybe one or two people out of our massive following that we have. Like, Screw you, Brennan. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, like just the power of stopping what you're doing collecting yourself with a really intentional breath. I think intentional breathing is like so underrated. Darth Vader. I mean, right? Like like you with this, that question we pose, you know, I don't know if we've even put that out yet. I mean, you definitely wouldn't as Darth Vader, but Nick definitely <laughs> takes seven breaths, seven second breaths. 100%. That was four seconds. 
Dude, seven seconds is pretty aggressive, but I'm down. I should probably start doing that more often. Yeah, we all should. Yeah. Well, this has uh, been a good conversation. Yeah. I would like to once again reiterate that we are not parents. <laughs> and or we, experts. Or experts in this field. We are processing this information. So uh, if you feel like you've got good resources or knowledge about this topic, please, by all means, throw us a comment or something in YouTube, Instagram, wherever, Facebook, let us know what you other good resources you think that you have that we could be enlightened to because we'd love to learn more yeah we definitely want to know more because our conversations are pretty good i like them Mm -hmm. but yeah they're not the most insightful yeah we try and go deep from a surface level understanding Mm -hmm. and we can only go there's only so much depth we can achieve yeah but there's so much to this so much so thanks for stopping by we will be posting a new interview next week It is a fun one. It is about sports and politics. So stay tuned, and then we will do an off-sours the week after. Hope you have a good weekend. Hope you have a good week. Thanks for stopping by. See you later. Peace.